0: Well, we're going to start in John chapter 16 and verse 7. Jesus is speaking and he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. That's probably not (laughs) not super comforting to hear. Uh, It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper who he earlier described to be the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of of this world is judged. In this series we've been looking at different rulers of this world and we've been looking at how God has made human beings to rule, to exercise rule, authority, responsibility in this earth and he created us to do that within the context of submission to his lordship, to submission to his rulership. And we are meant to rule with God. But When human beings seek to rule the world apart from God, bad things end up happening. And we've looked at different rulers who sought to rule the whole world. And behind each of those rulers and any tyrant king you can pick out of of your Bible, out of history, behind all of them is this same spirit who Jesus refers to here as the ruler of the world, the ruler of the world is also known as the accuser, the Satan, the father of lies. And he's the one behind... That's why when you look at these different stories, we keep seeing the same thing happen over and over and over, where they try to define right and wrong, good and evil on their own terms. Uh, You see them trying to set up their own empires to rule the world. Why is the same thing happening over and over again? It's because it's the same spirit behind them all. The father of lies. And he says, the ruler of this world has been judged. And then he goes on to say this. I still have so many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he, not it, the Holy Spirit isn't just this force, it's a person. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Remember, the, the ruler of this world is known as the father of lies. But the spirit of truth will come and he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, with each of the rulers, what we saw was as these rulers sought to make themselves God, they would take upon themselves a title that also belonged to God. So in in week one, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar, who was referred to as the King of Kings. In week two, we looked at Caesar, who was called the Son of God. Week three is no different. This ruler, he goes by the title, the guide. The guide. At least that's what it is in English. But in his native language, which is German, his title is the Fuhrer. So if you were to ask an ancient Jew who the embodiment of evil is, they would most likely say, well, Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. If you were to ask a a first century Christian who the embodiment of evil was, they would probably say, clearly, Caesar Caesar. If you were to ask most people in the modern world today who the embodiment of evil is, they would probably say Hitler and the Nazis. And so it's for that reason that we're gonna turn and we're gonna look at our third ruler, the third person who sought to make themselves God and build their own empire, the guide, the fear, Hitler. So there's the obvious question of why in the world are we talking about Hitler and the Nazis in church, okay? Legitimate question. So we've looked at an Old Testament example of how, what happens when men make, try to make themselves God. That was week one. We looked at a New Testament example with Caesar. And there can be this disconnect whenever we look at something that happened so long ago that, I mean, we can kind of, like, I cracked jokes when I talked about the story of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? It's because we're so far removed from it that, that we don't feel that, that pain, that tension, that those who experienced it or who were close to that time period would have felt. Uh, but that is certainly not the case with this story. Uh, this story is... Is close to our time period. It hits a little differently. And I think there is merit in us looking at this story because I think that there's something that we can learn. See, if we, I want to put it like this. So, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was uh, a prisoner in what were called gulags, which were the communists' versions of of concentration camps. And he wrote this book called The Gulag Archipelago. And he opens his book with this statement. He said, man, I really wish, he he didn't say man, that's (laughs) paraphrasing. He said, I I really wish that, that people could just read or hear the stories of what other nations have had to walk through and all of the horrors and actually learn from them. And he said, but that's a very difficult thing to do. And he said, here's why it's so difficult. Because there's always this fallacious or false belief that what happened there can't happen here, it's impossible. And he said this, he said, alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth whether it's communism in Russia, whether it's Nazi socialism in Germany and Europe, all the evil that you see, it's possible everywhere on earth. And so I think it's for that reason that we approach this story to learn. Because somehow a nation which was almost entirely... Christian was able to be completely deceived. And that, like, how in the world is a nation that is entirely Christian, as Germany was at the time, almost entirely Christian, how is the ruler of this world, the father of lies, able to deceive an entire people? And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So, Whenever Hitler came into power, he was elected. He was actually democratically elected as chancellor in 1933. And after he was elected, one of the Nazi leaders, the the Minister of Propaganda, was his actual title. Uh, We have different titles for them now. But, dang, I'm sorry. I'll try to keep those at a minimum. Okay. So the Minister of Propaganda after he came into power, wrote this. He said, Now it will be easy to carry on the fight, for we can call on all the resources of the state. Radio and press are at our disposal. We shall stage a masterpiece of propaganda. One of the props in their masterpiece of propaganda was Christianity. So, because here's the deal. If the the predominant belief system within the country is Christianity, then you've got to play the part, at least initially. And so that's what Hitler and the Nazis did. Early on in his career, he would give these speeches and he would conclude these speeches in prayer to God, like our God. He would, you know, conclude in prayer. And it, it's like if, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but as a kid... Uh, I would, I would try to convince myself and my parents that certain music I listened to was okay. And, uh, you know, I liked the music, but the content of the music was not so great. But then I would watch these artists, whenever they got their awards, they would receive the award and they would acknowledge God, like our God. And when that happened, I would tell my parents, like, see, like they're Christians. They're on our team, right? Right. Because in my immaturity, I was able, like in my immaturity, I saw that. Just a simple, their words, acknowledging God as, okay, they're Christian. Like they're, they're on our team. I wasn't mature enough yet to know you don't just like listening and s- someone saying something is one thing, but looking at the content of their character and the fruit of their lives entirely different. And so... Hitler started out, you know, using prayer, acknowledging God, and all of those things as a way to win the people over. But he, like, his long-term goal was to get Christianity completely out of the picture. Um, he, he was quoted saying, you know, why does our, like, why, why is the religion of our nation, why does it have to be Christianity? Like There are so many other religions that would be much more conducive to my agenda, but I don't like Christianity because it's weak, it's meek, it's flabby, is what he called it. I don't like the flabbiness and the meekness of Christianity because here's the deal. Jesus is a lot of things, and he can do a lot of things, but one thing he is not is a prop. He is not a prop that is to be used to further an empire of man. And he should never be that. But yet, Hitler and his goons were successful in at least putting up this portrayal initially, early on. And he faced this problem, though, that, like I mentioned, Jesus doesn't make a very good prop. And that's a problem. So, what are they to do when they need a game plan to solve this problem and the game plan is wrapped up in this term positive christianity so i'm going to read you an excerpt from their official nazi party platform like this is this is their official platform point 24 and their platform it says this the party again the party being the nazis The party as such represents the standpoint of positive Christianity without tying itself to a particular confession. It fights the spirit of Jewish materialism within us and without us, as in like uh, within and then surrounding them. And it is convinced that a lasting recovery of our people can only take place from within on the basis of the principle public need comes before private greed. So, in this statement, what they did, their strategy for, you know, dealing with this Christianity issue was to recreate it by the term positive Christianity. Well, here's the deal. If the standpoint that they're upholding is positive Christianity, who gets to define and determine what's positive and what's negative? They do. So here we are again, a man seeking to rule the world apart from God, has to deal with, and is seeking to determine right and wrong, good and evil on his own terms. By saying, now that we... we uh, now that we uphold positive Christianity, we, we just made a new game. And when you make a new game, you get to make up the rules. And so what's positive? What is positive Christianity? Well, it's political Christianity. It's Nazi Christianity. It's what we say it is. What's negative? Well, you know, things like individual human beings having value and dignity, that's, that's negative Christianity. That's not what we're about. Um, negative Christianity is acknowledging Jews as human beings who are dearly loved by God. That's negative. And so what we're gonna do as positive Christians is we're gonna fight that Jewish materialism. And so in defining good and evil, they defined what was, uh, what was worth Uh, seeking after as German people. And look at this quote from the head of Hitler Youth and Secretary of State. He said, one cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. Okay. That seems somewhat reasonable. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans... We act according to the laws of God. Again? Okay. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, the guide, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany serves God. Do you see that? It's hey, we're your friends. We're on the same team, we're on the same page. We, we're all about serving God. And guess what? In our world, guess who's God? Hitler. And if you really love God, you'll serve him. But see, they had to, they had, I mean, we know our scripture. If you, if you know your scriptures, there is a glaring problem with the fact that negative Christianity involves seeing that Jews have dignity, worth, value, and God loves them? Because your Bible is the story of Israel? Jesus is a Jew? This is a problem. So how do they get around it? Simple. They just say that he's not. And they start teaching, well... In the area that Jesus was, it actually wasn't originally Jewish people. Uh, he was Aryan, but then the Jews came in and they, they took the, the area over. So they, they came in and they, they sieged them and they took the place over. And so Jesus was actually under Jewish opposition. Uh, and so they, they would say things like, uh, well... When you look at your scriptures and you see how Jesus can, like Jesus goes toe to toe with some of the Jewish leaders, right? Okay. Well, they painted Jesus as this Aryan war hero who was combating the Jews because they were Jewish. So if if you know some of those passages, you're like, uh... Like, Jesus does go toe-to-toe with some of these leaders, but it's not because they're Jewish. It's because they're self-righteous, which is the very thing that the Nazis are doing, is being self-righteous. So they had to do a little finagling with the fact that Jesus was a Jew, but yet a lot of people bought into the lie. If Christians practiced or proclaimed negative Christianity, they would be put on trial and continually arrested, jailed, and sent off to camp. The use of positive Christianity uh, led the Nazi leaders to be able to say, you know what? The church just isn't doing their job. They're not doing a very good job promoting positive Christianity. And so we think that It's our role as the state to swoop in and to now take up the mission of the church was was their words. We are now taking up the mission of the church. Well, what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them the ways of God. Well, guess what they did? Just that. Their goal was to go into all the world make disciples of their God. And it wasn't Jesus. They were set out to further, not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of Hitler. Nazism became a competing religion. So it wasn't just this political thing that was going on. And and in this sermon, I'm, I'm, skipping over a ton of geopolitical and historical things. We're looking at what was happening within the church. Why? Because I only have, you know, 45 minutes left on my clock. (laughs) Since worship was cut short, I'm taking that time, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm kidding. Um, No, so Nazism became a competing religion, complete with its faith in a savior, sacred writings, and and an eternal kingdom. So faith in a savior was the first one. We're going to look at that. The word faith was used a lot in Nazi propaganda. There's a story of this Jewish professor who encountered a girl, a young, uh, young German girl on campus, and she seemed particularly excited. And he asked her, what, why are you so giddy? And she said, well, I haven't been this excited since the start of the first great war because the Fuhrer has brought Germany home again. And also you need to know this, that my life belongs entirely to the Fuhrer. And the professor said, well, what gives you such confidence in in Hitler? Where does that confidence come from? And her response was, where all certainties come from, faith, faith. See, in this culture, in this nation, Hitler had replaced Jesus as their savior because they were dealing with the embarrassment and the shame from the first world war and they needed someone to come and save them. And here comes this charismatic leader promising to do just that, and they bought into it. The state, so continuing on the attempt to convince everyone that Hitler is the Savior, the state forbid the church from participating in charitable activities. They couldn't go out and help the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. They couldn't do that. Because Hitler and the Nazi party needed to be the only one who could go out and help the hurting. Because he needs to be seen as as the savior. And this created a huge schism in the church, as you can imagine. So one movement that was going on was called the German Christian movement. So the German Christian movement was, was... all on board with this. Uh, They were all about it. And then the other camp was called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church said, "Mm, let's hold up. We don't think Hitler's God, okay? The German Christians, however, were were all on board for this. And I mean, you would have in, in the same church building, you would have one pastor at one end of the room Representing the German Christian Church, preaching that good news, that positive Christianity, and in the same church building, in the same room, at the same time, you would have another preacher on the other side of the room preaching, and so it was causing this rift within the church. And those who uh, who followed the German Christian movement and followed the way of Hitler, uh, Hitler replaced Jesus in many ways. Uh, Christmas, which is a beloved holiday. How many of you have already started decorating for Christmas? One? One? Okay, I was talking to somebody yesterday. Oh, two, there's someone else. Uh, I was talking to someone yesterday who said that they've already put their tree up. Like, it's October. It's mid-October. But you know what? Some people just love it. Some people just love it. So, Christmas, beloved holiday for us, has always been a point of contention. Because it's the announcement that the king of the world has arrived. And for those who think that they're the king of the world, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Always has been, still is. And so there was a particularly pointed attack towards Christmas, so in certain Christmas hymns, where Jesus would be, Hitler was replaced in those lyrics. So, so listen to this. Silent Night. I'm not going to sing it. Because everyone would leave the church in, in tears, and not the good kind of tears, not the Holy Ghost tears. Painful tears. Okay. So Silent Night, it's, it's the song about the the night that Christ was born and the coming of the king that's been long awaited and expected. And here were the lyrics saying in Nazi Germany, in the church. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Only the chancellor, steadfast in fight, watches over Germany by day and by night always caring for us. So, also in Christmas, there are sermons in which pastors would say, they would, they would paint this scene, that Germany was falling into deep darkness and despair, and then he came. And you can guess who that is. It's not Jesus. He came. And he didn't just talk about the light, but he walked in the light. And then Germany woke up, awoke, and followed the sign of the light, the swastika. Those are direct quotes from a sermon given in 1936. The swastika was the sign and the symbol of the Nazi party it translates to hook cross is the English translation of that word, hook cross. A distortion of the cross. And so the question that faced the German people was whose cross are they going to follow? The hook cross of Hitler or the cross of Jesus Christ? Are they going to follow the Nazi Jesus the German Jesus, or are they going to follow the crucified Jesus? And that same question still faces us today because our culture tries to paint Jesus after their own image. And so even today, we face the question of which Jesus are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the Jesus that our culture tries to paint or are we going to follow the crucified Christ? Amen. Not only did the religion of Nazism have its savior, it also had its sacred texts. So it had its writings. Hitler, Hitler's manifesto, in which he redefined a few things like original sin, he redefined to be a sin or the sin. Against blood and race, the worst, the original sin, the worst, the the uh, like, the beginning, the genesis of all evil things in the world, came from a sin against blood and race. Also, redefined the Trinity, not as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, redefined the Trinity to be blood, faith, and state. Uh, marriages, baptisms, all of these key ceremonies were all given Nazi texts. The third thing, an eternal kingdom. So the name of Hitler's kingdom was the Third Reich. Reich in German, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, German people can let me know later, but the Third Reich, Reich is the German word for kingdom, the third kingdom. There was this common question that was given on exams. For students during this time. And the question was, what comes after the Third Reich? If they answered the fourth, they failed the exam. Because nothing comes after the Third Reich. Because Hitler is setting up a kingdom that will endure forever. Does this sound familiar? This sounds like the the past two weeks, the past two tyrant kings that we've looked at, where men try to make themselves God, try to define and determine good and bad, good and evil on their own terms. And in doing so, human lives become dispensable. They attempt to set up their own kingdom that will last forever. Like this is the same story over and over again. Why? Because behind each one of them is the same spirit, the ruler of this world. Karl Barth, one of, one of the leaders of the confessing church, he said, The kingdom of man is without exception, never the kingdom of God. The kingdom of man is without exception, never the kingdom The kingdom of God. Though sadly, many Christians and many pastors would conform and bow down to the image of Hitler, not everyone did. There was a remnant, as there always is. This remnant was called the confessing church. When the order went out for all pastors to sign an oath of loyalty to Hitler, or face dismissal. So either you sign this oath of loyalty to Hitler as a pastor, or you lose your job. When that went out, those who were part of this network of churches, the confessing churches, said, oh, we're not going to sign that. 90% of Protestant pastors signed it. But not everyone did. When the order went out, or when when the state caught wind that the churches were going to be addressing the dangers that they see with the new religion, which is National Socialism, the state sent out this order demanding that every church remove that language from, from their pulpits. And we need it in writing that you're not going to read that. That you're not going to read that, that statement about having a concern about us. Many did, but not everyone did. And those who didn't were arrested on multiple occasions. They were kicked out of their their homes, their areas. If they kept going back, because some did, uh, some pastors were were ordered by the state to leave the area because they, they just wouldn't follow their rules. And yet these pastors had such a care for their people that knowing what would happen they still stepped into the pulpit. One of those, Paul Schneider, the first Protestant pastor who was murdered in a concentration camp, that's his story. That happened. So on the day that that order went out not to read it or you'll be arrested, 715 pastors were arrested. One of the leaders in the confessing church, Carl Bart, he wrote, he, he delivered a sermon in 1933, because some, some people caught on to this sooner than others. Uh, some pastors were a little slow to the party. Pastor Martin Niemöller, who is well known for his quote, which is, first they came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the, social, the trade unionists. I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up. So that, that pastor, he had initially voted for Hitler in 1933 because he, he thought this is, this is a good thing for our nation. It's good. And I believe that he upholds the Christian faith and that everything's going to be good. So that was what he was thinking until later, whenever these rifts started happening in the church, uh, Martin Niemöller, took a stance against the German Christian movement saying, some of the things they're saying are, are not, like that's blasphemous and, and we're not okay with it. And so all of this little schism was happening in the church and Hitler wasn't too happy about that, what was happening because it made it look like he wasn't in control. So what he did is he called a meeting with some of the key leaders and key pastors. Martin Niemöller was one of them. So He was invited to this meeting with Hitler with 12 12 church leaders. And he walks in, and Hitler, standing in the room, back against the wall, walks in, and he introduces himself to, to each of the leaders. The room was dead silent, and Hitler looks over at, remember, at this point, Martin Niemöller is going into this meeting thinking, He's going to convince the Fuhrer that the German Christians have it wrong and they're not being faithful to Jesus. And we're just going to get this whole thing fixed. Earlier that day, he had called one of his friends and they had talked about, we're going to get this sorted out and we're going to give it to Hitler. So now he's in this meeting. It's dead silent. Hitler looks over at one of his leaders. Leader reaches into a red briefcase and pulls out a word-for-word transcript of the phone conversation that Martin Niemöller had had earlier that day. And at this point, he realizes, I have made a grave mistake. So Hitler says, calls him out, says, Niemöller, come here. So he walks up, said, is this true? Did you say these things? said, I did but I, I did because I was trying to care for the German people. And then Hitler lost it. He tells him, he tells you leave the care of the German people up to me. And then he just goes off on his rant for who knows how long. At the end of this meeting, Hitler goes back and shakes each person's hand. And when he shakes Martin Niemöller's hand, Pastor Martin Niemöller tells him, earlier you said to leave the care of the German people up to you. But I want you to know something. I want you to know that neither you nor any power in this world has the authority and is in the position to remove the role that God has entrusted to us in the caring for people. And so from then on, uh, Hitler and Niemöller did not see eye to eye, which resulted in a lot of pain for, for his life. Karl Barth, another person who he and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know that name, Both of them saw this coming a lot earlier than Niemöller. So soon after Hitler's uh, uh, being sworn in to his role, Karl Barth delivers this sermon called Jesus as a Jew. And he opens the sermon with these words. The church of Jesus Christ is a crowd, a throng, a gathering, A community, as that beautiful old word expresses it. It is a word that we have to learn to understand all over again in a completely new way. A community that is not held together by common interests and that is not held together by common blood and not even by common opinions and convictions. But certainly a community held together rather by that voice, that we hear at the beginning and at the end of our text. The same voice that we heard tonight as we read the text. A voice that sounds repeatedly and that is never to be falsified or confused with any other tone in the world. That is as applicable today for us as it was to them nearly 100 years ago. Karl Barth printed that sermon and sent a copy of it to Hitler. See, every tyrant ruler who thinks they are the most powerful force on earth will eventually encounter something even more powerful, the truth. The truth, the truth, not a truth, not my truth, not your truth, not their truth, the truth. The truth is a person. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the ruler of the cosmos. His throne is the one who is established, that is established now and forever. It is his kingdom that will stand for all time. And that Jesus said that it's better for him to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. And he said that spirit, the spirit of truth, will lead you and guide you into all truth. It will lead you to me in all things. That it is the Holy Spirit who is to be our God. And as he leads us and he guides us, he leads us into truth. The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says that wherever that spirit is, wherever the spirit of the Lord, that spirit of truth, wherever that is, there is freedom. There is liberty. Why? Because the truth sets free. If the truth sets one free, what do lies do? They enslave you. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what lies are we believing? What lies are we believing? Because if we think the stories that I've shared over the past three weeks are just about, if our takeaway from that is, man, how dumb can that people group be? how foolish are they? How gullible are they? We've entirely missed the point. Because we too are susceptible to buying into a lie. See, the father of lies is crafty. He's not going to tempt you with something that you're not tempted with. He's not going to try to lie to you about something that isn't close enough to what you believe to be true for you to buy it. So what lies are we believing? What lies are we believing about ourselves? What lies are we believing about our spouse, about our kids, about our world, about our God? You can believe lies about God. You know, if you believe the lie that God hates you, Because you haven't performed well, then that enslaves you, that binds you, because it's a lie. God's, God's love towards you is not contingent upon your performance. It's not contingent upon my performance, thank God. It's because of what Jesus has done that God loves us and always will. See, when you believe a lie, you come under a yoke of slavery, under a yoke of bondage. But we have been set free. So no longer submit yourself to the yoke of bondage. Well, the follow-up question to that would be, well, that's great and good. What lies do I believe? But how do I know what is a lie and what is truth? We turn to another place in the book of the gospel according to John, John chapter eight. Jesus says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, already this is not positive Christianity, okay? Because here we have Jews believing in Jesus. That would be a problem. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, and you're my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In a culture saturated with lies, the world needs a people who are saturated in the word of God. We must be saturated in the word of God. How do we know what is true and what is a lie? We look at the word. We saturate ourselves in the word, the living word, Jesus. We follow his way, his model, the written word, the scriptures. We meditate on them day and night. The spoken word, the Holy Spirit. We follow the guidance of the helper that Jesus has sent to us. See, I think part of what is going on is we have we have off, we've outsourced truth to what the internet says. And so now that there are opinions all over the place on certain things on the internet, our sor- if that was our source of truth, you are completely lost right now. So that's uncovering something. It's uncovering that our source of truth was somewhere other than Jesus. Because it's not if you abide on Google, you will know the truth. If you abide on Facebook, you'll know the truth. Abide in me. Abide in my word. And you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. See the found... Well, let me say this. Sorry, I almost skipped a line. Solzhenitsyn also said this. He said, The ordinary man may not be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but he can at least say that he's not going to be its loyal subject. I'm glad I didn't skip that. That's good stuff. I didn't say it, which is why I can applaud it. That's, that's good stuff. You may look at just the saturation of lies and think, what in the world can I do about that? You may not be able to overturn the entire kingdom of lies, but you can at least commit yourself to this to not be its loyal subject, to not live your life by their lies. See, the foundational lie that Hitler used to deceive the masses was wrapped up in his name the fear, the guide. See, if you can convince people that you are the guide, the leader, then you can take him wherever you want to go. That was the foundational lie, that he is the guide. This is from a sermon in 1933. So a sermon that was preached in a church. The preacher said this, we put our trust in our God sent Fuhrer, our God sent guide, who was almost blinded when he heard God's call, you must save Germany and who, once his sight was restored, began that great work. They're riffing off of the story of Apostle Paul's conversion, who previously persecuted Christians after his conversion stopped. You know, but this is early on in the game. They don't know what's coming yet. And what, what happened was the same thing that always happens when you put your trust in the proud, when you buy into lies. The same thing always happens. And that's that downward spiral that we've been looking at over the past three weeks. Compare that to this from the the actual scriptures. Psalm 40, verse four. Blessed is the man Who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. From the fiery furnaces of Babylon to the ovens of Auschwitz, we've looked at what can happen when men seek to rule the world apart from God. In every story of great catastrophe, there are stories of great courage. Men and women who refuse to follow the proud, refuse to buy into the lie, who instead of placing their trust in people, in, in people to be their savior, place their trust in God, in Yahweh, the Lord. Victor Frankel was one of these people. He was a Jewish psychiatrist who was arrested and sent to to Auschwitz. Upon his arrival there, he was stripped of his clothes, and inside his jacket, he was hiding the manuscript for his life's work. Um, All of the the thoughts, all of the ideas that he's been working on his entire life that he planned on publishing, he he hid in his jacket. Um, And I don't know if you've ever tried to write anything, but sometimes those words can be there in the moment and they're hard to to find again. So this was really precious to him. His clothes, including his manuscript, were stripped from him. His life's work, gone. And in place of his clothes, he was given a new set of clothes. Prisoner's clothes, raggedy. And on the inside of his new jacket, which he inherited from a man who had just been sentenced to the gas chambers, inside the pocket of his new jacket was this piece of paper that was rolled up. And on the piece of paper was the Shema, which is the most important Jewish prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This prayer was prayed in Babylon, it was whispered in Rome, it was prayed in Auschwitz. Victor Frankel was one of those fortunate people who would survive the camp. And after his liberation, he went on to finish his book, and he concludes his book with a reflection on that moment. And he said this, he said, our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, He is also that same being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's prayer or the Shema on his lips.